This morning we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and uh, we're continuing our look at David's life and some of the amazing things that the Lord did in David's life. We're also in a stretch here, if you look at the, the later section of what Scripture tells us about David's life, you actually see some very difficult things that are the consequences of some of David's not-so-great decisions. But in the midst of it, you could also see how the Lord was working in his heart. And the question we're going to be asking this morning as we look at, at 2 Samuel chapter 24 is this question, what in the world can you really count on? Because you're going to see David attempting to count on something from a worldly metric, and we're going to watch how that played out in his life and how that impacted the lives of the people of Israel and Judah. So again, turn with me to 2 Samuel 24. I'm going to start with the first four verses, and then we'll revisit different sections as we work our way through this chapter. This is what it says, starting with verse 1. It says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for the privilege that you give to us to be able to look at it together. And we pray that right now, as we look at this portion of your word, that you'd help us to understand what we're reading. We pray that we would grow from it. We pray that we would learn the kind of lessons that you were in the process of teaching David. But also, Lord, we're, we're realizing that as we look at the example of, of his life and some of the decisions that he made, that there are things that you want us to learn from this so that we don't repeat ancient mistakes but Lord, we know that we're, we have the same propensity to do the same exact things that David did. And Lord, we pray that our trust would be in you in the midst of a world where we try to count on so many things other than you. And Lord, we pray that we would put you first, that we would truly learn to count on you in the midst of everything else. So Lord, we pray that you'd give us your wisdom and your insight as we look at this portion of your word together. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I want us to think about something for just a second, and uh, it's just this idea of safety and security. So when you think about what makes you feel safe and secure, what would you put in that list? So just think that in your mind for just a moment. What makes you feel safe and secure? Or maybe I could even ask it this way. What, what do you spend your time seeking because you're convinced it will put your life on a more stable footing? So think about that question for just a second. And I would suspect that many of the answers that are coming to some of our minds are pretty similar. There are a lot of things in this world that I think most people would look at and say, well, this provides some level of stability, or this provides some level of security, or this takes care of this needs, or this feels like it's important to have so that, so that all the other things kind of come together. Keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. Uh, not long ago, I was actually listening to an interview with a musician who was part of a popular band several decades ago. And during the interview, he was sharing 
a variety of things. One of the things he was sharing about was actually what it was like to enjoy fame and all the trappings that, that come with worldly esteem and worldly riches and everything else that he experienced during the height of the popularity of the band that he was part of. And he also talked about the fact that everywhere he went during that season of his life, people knew who he was. And whenever, whenever he walked into the offices of the record label that he and his band happened to be signed to, he said he felt like a king. He just felt like a king every time he'd walk in there. His picture was plastered all, plastered all over the building, so he'd walk around the building, he'd see his picture here, he'd see another press shoot over here, he'd see album covers over here. He was everywhere throughout the building, and everyone wanted to talk to him because his band at the time was selling in the millions. And he said, man, it just felt great. And, uh, you know, as you're hearing that, you can kind of see where this is probably going to go, right? Because those of us who have been around for any length of time recognize that the recording industry is a very fickle business. It's very fickle. Music styles change just as quickly as hairstyles and clothing styles and, and uh, what's fashionable and automobiles and everything else. It changes quickly. So what's popular today might not be popular tomorrow, and that's exactly what this musician learned very quickly after being at the pinnacle of his career. And he mentioned that when it came time for them to record a follow-up album and release it to their, to their major success, he noticed there didn't seem to be a whole lot of interest. So they'd just been on the, at, at the peak of their popularity, and all of a sudden there wasn't a whole lot of interest. And then he noticed that when he, re, when he visited the recording label's offices, that the posters with his face and with the faces of his band members, those were down now and had been replaced with newer artists and newer bands. And the label told him, and he realized they very quickly considered him and his band a relic that had gone out of fashion, and then without the support of their company, their album sales tanked. So they went from millions in album sales to very little album sales at all. You're wondering probably, what band am I talking about? Do you remember the band Nelson? Does anyone remember Nelson? This was Nelson. Anyway, regardless, I wasn't even going to tell you what band, but I'm seeing in your face, you're like, well, what's the band? What's the band? What are you talking about? It's two brothers, all right? Two twin brothers. Their grandparents were Ozzy and Harriet. Their dad was Ricky Nelson. I know you wanted to know all that information. You're welcome. But I look at examples like that, and I think about things like that. Um, when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, it, it, it's a good example of, of what's being illustrated here because it gives us a good reminder that placing our faith in worldly metrics or in things that are like numbers that can be counted by man, that's a form of misplaced faith. It's a misplaced faith. It's not a good idea to do it. We're all tempted to do it. I've certainly done it. You've done it in different areas of your life, I'm sure. But it's a misplaced faith anytime we do that. So trusting in our number of album sales, it's a mistake. Trusting in the digits in our bank accounts, also a mistake. Trusting in the reach of our social media, that's a mistake. Or anything that might have an impressive number, whatever metric you want to use, none of it compares to the eternal value we receive when we learn to trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the message Scripture is trying to convey to our hearts, that trusting in Christ puts our faith on a solid footing. It puts our faith on a, on a foundation that isn't shaken by temperamental things. And in fact, I think that the big lesson that the Lord wants you and I to discover during the course of our life, something He wants us to learn, every single one of us, He wants us to learn 
what it means to trust in Him. He wants us to understand the value of trusting in Him. That's the big lesson that the Lord's trying to teach you as you go through the ups and downs of your day-to-day life. He wants you to learn to trust in Him. Now, as we've been looking at David's life, it's clear that David trusted in the Lord, correct? I mean, like, there's no doubt. David absolutely trusted in the, in the Lord, but you see some of these low moments that I think are very, very intentionally included in the Scriptures here so that we wouldn't idolize somebody like David. And they're also very relatable moments because you could see certain times in his life when the application of his faith seemed to waver. And this is definitely one of them when you get into 2 Samuel chapter 24. We see it illustrated here. It's not saying that David wasn't a man of faith. He certainly was. But the application of that faith, at least in this moment, definitely wavered. And this passage of Scripture, and we just read a portion of it. We're going to reread that in a moment and look at some others. But that passage of Scripture tells us that David got it in his mind to take a census of Israel and Judah. And on the surface, I imagine that many of us living in our culture would look at that and be like, why would that matter? Like, why is that a big deal? Why would, why would taking a census be any sort of an issue during David's time? Well, I'll get into some of the reasons why that was a problem, but why do you suppose he wanted to do this? Why do you suppose he, he had it in his mind or in his heart to take this census? Or why does anyone count anything? You know, if someone's going to count something, whether it be album sales, uh, you know, digits in your bank account, uh, net worth, et cetera, et cetera. Why does anyone count anything? Well, I'm thinking that David, as he's looking at his life and as he's looking at his leadership, looking at the nation that he's overseeing, I'm guessing he couldn't help but notice that the strength and the influence of the nation of Israel had certainly grown during his tenure as king. He's seeing that. He's noticing that in his decades of leadership. And for good reason, he wanted the nation of Israel to be strong. Why would he not want his his nation to be strong? He loved the nation of Israel. He wanted them to be strong. He wanted them to be able to to fend off threats from surrounding armies and other people. And by the way, one thing that's kind of curious about the nation of Israel, and for spiritual reasons, I feel like I, I have a pretty good handle on why this seems to be the case all the time, but their whole history, whether it be modern history or ancient history, has always been one of neighboring nations threatening them. Why does everybody care so much about Israel? I think the answer is spiritual. Because the Lord has revealed and done so many things through them that then reach to the rest of the world. And here you have David saying, you know, I want us to be strong. I want us to be able to fend off our, na- our neighbors if they decide to turn against us. I want us to just be a powerhouse in our generation. But what was the real source of Israel's power? Like when you get down to it, what was the real source of their power? Was their, fo- was their power found in the size of their, their army or the size of their overall population? Or when you look at what Scripture reveals to us, was their, their power actually found in the providential grace of God and the great favor that He had shown them as a nation? I think we know it's the latter, right? Their power was found in the providential grace of God and this favor that He had shown them over and over again. Now, I'm going to bring this up on the screen so we could look at this together again. But in 2 Samuel chapter 24, when those first four verses open up, they say this. I want to reread them, even though I just read them a moment ago. They say this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. We're going to come back to that statement in a few moments. And it says, and he incited David against them, saying, 
Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. By the way, this process was not a quick and easy process. This was a process that was going to take over nine months to complete. So imagine being Joab and being told you have to do this. It's like, oh, well, there goes a year of my life, right? But he's told, go from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, and, I, and by the way, I don't think Joab's complaint here against David was because of how, how long it was going to take. He's going to be working as the commander of the army doing something. So it's like, all right, here's my new task. He always went task to task, right? I think his complaint here is because he knows that this is an inherently wrong thing that David is suggesting. And he says, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? The king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. I can only imagine the grumbling that uh, <laughs> existed amongst their ranks as they went out to do this, thinking, oh, I can't believe we have to do this. Well, we have to do it. Why complain, right? But you have David here instructing Joab. He's the commander of his army. He says, all right, I want you to go throughout the land. I want you to number the people. You have Joab protesting. And I, again, I believe that Joab was, was at a spot where he understood that this was inherently wrong for David to do. And I don't think David was necessarily used to being challenged, although there were several people throughout the course of his life that took the liberty to do so. But understand that anytime you would challenge a king, you're, you're to some degree taking your life in your hands because they can snap their finger and ultimately decide that your days are done. But you have Joab challenging him, saying, like, this is not a good idea. Why? Like, you know, may the Lord bless you in other ways. May you see the population increase many, many times over what it currently is, but you have David saying, listen, this is what I've set my heart to do. This is what is to happen. And you have David's eyes, they're temporary blind, temporarily blinded to the fact that this is not the right thing to do. And yet Joab could see right through this. And I think what Joab was seeing here was a mixture of pride and insecurity. Do you know why, like, do you understand why I would say both, even though they possibly seem like they're on opposite ends of a spectrum? I think pride is blinding, right? You could look at something and you could say, look at how big and strong our nation has become. But then you could also in the next breath say, I hope nothing messes that up. And so I think there's like some pride and some insecurity on David's part here. And in fact, elsewhere in Scripture, God revealed the fact that there would be negative consequences for taking action like this. If this wasn't done according to how God prescribed it to be done, and if this wasn't done Ultimately, at the Lord's direction, there would be negative consequences for numbering the people of Israel. And basically what the Lord wanted the people of Israel to understand was their strength wasn't in their numbers. It's very much what the Lord wants you and I to understand during the course of our life. What does he say? His strength is made perfect in our what? Weakness. Because what happens? When we're weak, we have the privilege to demonstrate his miraculous strength, accomplishing things in our day-to-day -day life that can't be attributed to our natural talents or abilities or our natural resources. There are things in our life that we could only give credit to God for. And the chief reason you and I were created was to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But you know what we struggle with? We struggle with a desire to glorify ourselves. 
And we struggle with a desire to trust in whatever we could accumulate in this world and worldly strength and all sorts of things. And the Lord was trying to indicate to the people of Israel that He wanted them to trust Him. So He's saying, listen, don't number. Don't make a habit of numbering the people. There's going to be consequences for doing so. I'll show you where it's referenced elsewhere in Scripture. In Exodus 30, verses 12 and 13, it says this. It says, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Meaning, if there isn't some sort of ransom given in the midst of this when a census is taken, expect judgment in the form of a plague. That's another way to phrase that statement. If you do this wrong, judgment will ensue. It says, each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. It was to be done only as the Lord directed it, only under certain circumstances, not casually, and not because you wanted to stop trusting in the Lord and trust in your numbers instead. And so basically, when David here decides to take a census of the people of Israel, he was acting like Israel belonged to him. Instead of recognizing this nation didn't belong to him, this nation belongs to God. And if a census of the people was to be taken, that's a decision that God would have to make, not an earthly king. God would have to direct it ultimately. And for David to do this, it was basically an expression of his desire to trust more in the size of Israel's population or more in the size of Israel's army than in the Lord. And in time, and this is kind of neat to see. I do appreciate this part of this story, and I, I want to I show us how this continues. In time, David actually comes to a spot where he realizes he's made a big mistake. He realizes he's made an error. Now, what do you do when you come to a spot when you realize you were wrong? Let's let that float in the air for a second. I know what some people in my life do. Never admit it. Fight to the death even though they know they're wrong, but their pride won't let them admit it. Right now, you're thinking of someone very specific, hopefully not someone you're sitting next to. Don't judge. This is judgment-free zone. It's like Planet Fitness. Don't judge anybody, right? <laughs> judgment-free. But this is kind of hard for us when we discover we're wrong. I actually think one of the ways you can tell that somebody is starting to really grasp and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is if, they're, if they become more willing to admit their errors than hold on to their pride. And this is what David did. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 10, it says this, But David's heart, so this is now after, sometime after this has all taken place, it says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, I'll tell you what, it can be one thing to admit our mistakes to other people. It's another thing to admit our mistakes to the Lord. I don't know why we hesitate to admit our mistakes to the Lord. I, I, well, I do know why, at least in part. I think sometimes we don't want to admit our mistakes to the Lord because if I admit my mistakes to the Lord, what does that demand? Demands that I have to stop making that same mistake, right? If I admit that it's a mistake to the Lord, it makes it a lot harder for me to justify continuing in that mistake. And sometimes there are certain mistakes we like to keep making, Right? But here you have David, he's saying, I'm sick of this. Like, this is making me feel like garbage. Tell you what, one of the recipes for depression in your life, if you hold on to something that you need to confess and repent before the Lord, if you try and hold on to it, I guarantee you, 
that eventually in your life you're going to feel downcast, you're going to feel tortured with that in such a way that you're going to want to get it out of your mind and out of your life. So let me encourage us, if there's anything we're holding on to that doesn't belong in our life, confess it quickly, repent of it quickly so that you could move on with your life and not be weighed down with that burden. And David went through a stretch here after thinking that he was kind of getting away with something that puffed him up in pride. He gets to a spot where he's like, I've made a big mistake. You know, and he says, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. And he says, and I, I think it's interesting, he says, Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. That's him describing himself. And that's recorded in Scripture for you and I to read. This is David saying this about himself. Now, I have to admit that when I read verses like this, my level of respect for David's leadership actually grows. It grows higher. It doesn't, it's not diminished when I read him saying this. It actually increases, because when you're in any form of leadership, I've definitely said this several times recently, but it keeps coming up as a pattern in Scripture, so it's worth reiterating. But when you're in any form of leadership, so this is whether you're a leader in your family, whether you're a leader in your workplace, whether you're a leader in the government, whether you're a leader in the church, it can be very difficult to admit when you're wrong, right? It can be very difficult for us to admit when we're wrong. And universally, I think that there's this fear that if we admit that we were wrong about something, that somehow that's going to diminish our ability to lead or have influence because people might then lose respect for us. So what do you think? In reading this about David, does this cause you to lose respect for David? I have to tell you, as I read this, I don't lose respect for him. I actually grow in respect for David as I look at a portion of Scripture like this. Scripture reveals, and I, have, I can personally testify to this, and I've personally seen this in the leadership of other people, the exact opposite of what our fears happen to be is what most often will come to pass. Leaders who can express humility, leaders who can express contrition, they are better leaders. I think they can be trusted because their hearts remain teachable. One of the, one of the scariest things that I see with certain people in certain positions of leadership is when they get to a spot where they're just convinced they know everything now. When you get convinced that you know everything, you're going to make a lot of decisions out of pride. And when you make a lot of decisions out of pride, someone's going to suffer. You're going to suffer, but you're going to cause the people that you lead to suffer as well, because you're going to make some error somewhere out of your arrogance, because pride blinds our eyes to the truth. And here, you see David expressing contrition. He expresses humility, he expresses repentance, and says, Lord, I've acted foolishly. Like, I didn't do the right thing. And he says, Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. Take it away. Like, I don't want it on my mind. I don't want it on my heart. I don't want this to be the type of thing that just burdens me day in and day out. But here's the thing. There were still consequences for David's sin. That's one of the difficult things. Like, even in the midst of our seasons of repentance, there may be things that you and I choose to do over the course of our lives that still have natural earthly consequences or consequences that need to be the fruit of, of God fulfilling a promise that He made. God is going to keep His word. If He says that you do this and then you get this result, God's not going to be uh, someone who is dishonest about any of these things. So there were, dis there were consequences for David's sin here, and the Lord was choosing to be quite honest about it, and these consequences were now laid before David. And David was given several 
options here. Now, I'm going to confess to you something that I subjected my children to, and you could tell me later on if you think that this was a good or a bad decision, okay? Um, I think it was great, but maybe I'm wrong, all right? Um, somewhere along the way, when you're, when you're raising children, you want to get to the spot where you're not just like trying to appeal to the fact that there's going to be some sort of physical consequence. You want your children to actually have a conscience, right? And, um, but it takes a while to get there. You know, usually when they're, they're in their single digits, there's usually like physical repercussions for their, you know, for what they choose to do. And then as they get older, there are, you know, certain consequences you would say that maybe operate on a deeper level if they get out of line. Well, I remember when my children were all in single digits, I was trying to just connect with their heart, connect with their mind, cause them to think a little bit more about some of the consequences of their actions. And I took a, a piece of paper and I ripped it up or I cut it up into a bunch of strips. And on each of those strips, I put various consequences for you know, deliberate defiance. Like if they were deliberately defiant to their mother or to me, they had to then choose one of these strips from, it's actually a cottage cheese container. That's the only thing I could find that wasn't in use. It's like a plastic cottage cheese container. It was cleaned, I promise. There was no cottage cheese in there still. Um, but I put these strips of paper with different consequences in it, and then they would have to select. So they would be choosing their own punishment if they were deliberately defiant. And so it would be things like, lose your bike for a week, or uh, you know, stand in a corner for the next 20 minutes and think about what you've done, or write out the Ten Commandments until they stick in your head, or uh, you know, some of them, I even put a couple cards in there that just said mercy, and if you picked a mercy card, you got nothing. The best is, Julia, I'm going to say something. I hope you're all right with it. Um, one of the things said, <laughs> uh, lose one doll. Lose one doll. So, you know, if Julia selected it, you know, picture four-year-old Julia selecting from this little plastic bucket, lose one doll. So <laughs> she did that at one point, and she goes to Andrea. She goes to her mother. She goes, oh, that's okay. I'll just find it again. We're like, no, no, honey, that's not what that, that doesn't... <laughs> That, that's not what it means. It means we're taking the doll away as a consequence for your deliberate defiance. She was so cute about it and so sweet. Oh, that, no, that's okay. I'll just find it again. <laughs> it, that, that's not how it works. It's not missing. Never mind. You're not getting this. Um, <laughs> it made us laugh. Well, when you look at what happens next here, you have David confessing his sin before the Lord, and the Lord presents before David a buffet of disciplinary options he can select from. So in essence, was what I was doing, like, was it biblical? I don't know. Rick, was it biblical? Like, was it, was I, I don't know. Uh, but when you look at what the Lord says here, when you get to verse 11, he reveals this. 2 Samuel 24, starting with verse 11, it says, And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. 
Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So when David here is pressed with these options, he could see that two of the options here place him and his nation at the mercy of men, and one option placed them at the mercy of God. None of these options were desirable for him, but of the three, he selected the third. And what was his reasoning for selecting the third? His his thinking was, I'd rather fall into the hand of God than be subject to the hands of men. And as this was carried out, what ends up happening is, you have David seeing this, and his heart was grieved, and it troubled him that the people of Israel were now dying because of his mistake. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. He was bothered that they were dying because of his mistake, and in fact, the Lord took the lives of 70,000 men in the midst of this pestilence as a result of David's sin. But was this only because of David's sin that they were taken? Just think about this for a second. Was it only because of David's sin that they were taken? You know, when you look at at verse 17, David says it this way. He says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep... So he's referencing the people of Israel and Judah, saying, But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. This is what he's pleading before the Lord. Now, I can understand David's feelings in that moment, right? Couldn't you? You know, if you looked at this and you said, look, I'm the one that made this mistake. Why are so many people, why are the lives of so many people being taken from them? I was the one that made this mistake. I can understand his feelings in that moment. But was David's assessment fully correct? What I mean is, were the people really innocent? Remember what was said in verse 1? Remember what was said earlier in the chapter? Verse 1, it said this, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against whom? Israel says, against, again, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Well, now, let me let that sit there for just a second. It's clear that David was not the only one in the land whose heart was in a bad place, correct? It appears that the nation as a whole was in a season where they were drifting from the Lord, and that being the case, it appears that God told David to number the people to actually set them up for judgment. But is that what happened? I think it may be best to look at what God said here as God allowing David to pursue what he had already set his heart to do. And I'll explain why I mean that or why I'm saying that, why I think that's what the Scripture is actually conveying, because a companion portion of this Scripture actually sheds a little light on what was taking place a little earlier that it influenced David's thinking. When you look at 1 Chronicles 21.1, it tells us this, speaking of the same event, and it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So what was taking place? You have David in the midst of his pride, buying into the deception of Satan and God allowing it, Because in the midst of this, Israel as a whole was living in the midst of rebellion. And then you look at David here, and you realize David, as this is all going on, he wanted the blame to come upon him because of his mistake, 
But again, there seems to be much more than just David's mistake taking place here. This judgment was directly connected to the fact that the the people of Israel had hearts that were drifting away from the Lord, and the Lord was using this as a collective wake-up call for the people. It wasn't just David that was in the midst of this season of sin. The whole nation was in the midst of it. And again, as far as I can tell, it seems that Satan influenced David to take this census and that God allowed it to to happen this way. He didn't stand in David's path because it was time for a severe lesson to be learned by the nation of Israel. But still, to read David's words as he asked the Father to relent from his judgment upon the people, And as David said, you know, to bring that wrath, to bring that righteous wrath against him and his own household instead of the nation, I think that's worth noting. And the reality of this situation is this. David couldn't fully stand in the place of the sinful people that he was leading because he was guilty of sin just as they were. Any taste of judgment or condemnation that either party received, whether it be David and his household or the nation of Israel, It was justified whichever direction it went. But I look at a portion of Scripture like this, and sometimes these historical narratives, when you look at them from Scripture, I kind of wonder if sometimes we look at these things and we think, what's the greater point that's, that's trying to be illustrated here? Like, why does the Lord record these things in Scripture? Why does He tell us about this unfortunate event in David's reign and in the, the history of Israel? I actually think that a big reason why these sorts of things are included for us to see is to help us keep our eyes on the one who really can stand in our place and really can absorb the wrath that was justifiably directed toward us, wrath that we actually deserved. The message of Scripture teaches us in many different ways, even through historical narratives like this, that Jesus himself is uniquely able to accomplish the absorption of wrath that we deserve. So you have David here looking at this situation and saying, I'm the one that sinned. Judge me. Judge my household. But yet Israel and David were were both guilty of sin. And, And you look at what Christ is able to do. Christ being innocent, Christ being sinless, is actually able to absorb the righteous wrath of the Father. I love what it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, speaking of Jesus, it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That's what Scripture is revealing to us about who Jesus is and what He's done for us. Jesus looked at us and saw a world just full of sheep that were straying. It's very interesting that that's a word that David used when he was, when he was looking at Israel. He's like, they're just like, like sheep. They're just like sheep. You know, they, 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 they're subjected to the effect of what their leader is choosing. And yet you have Jesus looking at us and and seeing a world full of sheep that were straying. We were going our own way. We were looking for the things of this world to save our wandering souls. We were counting our riches, numbering our armies, placing our faith in things of this world that can be quickly and easily taken away from us just at the snap of a finger or things that could just be lost over time. And we were trusting in all those sorts of things. And in our rebellion, Scripture reveals to us that humanity as a whole, we were, ju- in, in, we were indulging in every vice that the Lord tells us is profane to Him. That was, a, 
That's the condition that Christ came to this earth and found us in. We fed our flesh because we thought that feeding our flesh would somehow give us peace. But all it did was destroy us. And all it did was leave us in a state of confusion and under the wrath of God. And the only remedy that could truly satisfy the righteous standard of God was for one who was perfectly innocent and perfectly pure to suffer in our place. He would have to be sinless and would have to have no stain of his own, but who could accomplish such a task? Well, the only one who could truly accomplish something like this, the only one who could truly satisfy God's righteous requirements of holiness and perfection was God himself. That's what Scripture reveals. Only God Himself could satisfy His own standard. And so, Scripture tells us that God willingly took on flesh, and He walked among us, and He took our punishment upon Himself at the cross when He, God the Son, Jesus Christ, experienced death on the cross. And then Galatians 3 tells us this. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So we were under the curse. We were under the wrath of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it, and by the way, he couldn't have done that if he was already under that curse, but he wasn't under that curse because he's sinless, because he's God himself. He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Isn't it beautiful to be able to see Jesus do what David was hoping he could have done for the people of Israel? And yet what did Jesus do? He came and did it. No one else could do it. Only Jesus could do it. And so that's what He offers to you and to me. And I am so grateful that Jesus did this for us. You know, we gather together. I never tire of thinking about what He's done. I never tire of having the privilege from this pulpit to express it. Because it's something that should never be far from our mind. Something we should always be grateful for. I'm so grateful that Christ has done this for us. And now, what does He offer us? The Scripture tells us. He offers us the privilege to receive His Spirit, receive eternal blessings through faith in Him. That's offered to anyone who would trust in Him. So we trust in Jesus Christ where we receive the Spirit of God who takes up residence within us. He lives within us. We receive eternal blessings through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we were doomed to be condemned. That's what Scripture reveals. We were doomed to be condemned. But now through Jesus, we're offered the gift of life. So we went from death to life, from condemnation to liberty. And that being the case, is it too much of Him to ask us for anything less than our full devotion and our complete trust and our deepest friendship? That's what Christ deserves, our full devotion, our complete trust, our deepest friendship. The start of our our look at 2 Samuel 24, I asked the question, what in this world could you actually count on? Well, here's the thing. You can't count on something that can be taken away. Can't count on anything that can be taken away. If we're counting on anything that can be taken away, we're counting on something that's destined to fail us in one respect or another probably soon. But who can we count on who won't be taken away? Well, that's Jesus Christ Himself. And He makes that abundantly clear all throughout the words of Scripture and all throughout the experience that we get to have with Him as we walk by faith in Him. And I want to finish this morning by just quoting Billy Graham. 
He said something that I, I really love and appreciate, and I hope it encourages your heart like it encourages mine. But he said this years ago, he said, make sure of your commitment to Jesus Christ and seek to follow him every day. Don't be swayed by the false values and goals of this world, but put Christ and his will first in everything you do. That's God's desire for us. And he certainly earned and deserves that kind of devotion from each and every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together and think about the things that you revealed to us in it. Lord, we recognize that just like the nation of Israel and just like David, we have the propensity to stray from you. It's pretty easy to look at a portion of Scripture like this and pick it apart. It's pretty easy to look at a portion of Scripture like this and just say, oh, David, how could you do this? How could you not know what it said in Exodus that if you numbered the people? And then we think about all the things that, that are written in your Word that we don't know are there. We don't even realize so many things are there because... Maybe sometimes we don't prioritize time in your word like we should. I'm certain that that's something we all wrestle with to one degree or another. Or sometimes your word brings up things that we don't really want to hear because we've got other priorities at that season of our life. So, Lord, we're in the same exact boat that David was in, where sometimes we find it convenient to obey you and convenient to walk by faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and then other times we find it very convenient very appealing to just do whatever seems to make sense in this world and to trust in things that really have no eternal power or no eternal benefit. So Lord, we pray that you would correct our priorities if we find ourselves in a, a jumbled or mixed up position. We pray that if we're counting on things in this world that we're thinking that the sheer volume of them are somehow going to give us the safety and security that we, that we seek. We pray that we would look at these things and realize no, that's not really how life works for a follower of Christ. You've called us to glorify you. You've called us to experience reconciliation with you through faith in your Son. You've called us to rely on the power that you give to us through the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we pray that we would do that. We pray that that would be the pattern of our life. We pray that we would look at your word, take it seriously, Rely on your strength to live it out and not allow the things of this world to pull us in a direction that has nothing to do with your will for our lives. Lord, I'm so grateful for the privilege to be able to spend this time together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and just start off our week together looking at your word and thinking about these things. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the specific areas where we each need to apply these truths we know that there are things in our lives right now that we could probably identify that this applies to, but we also know that 10, 15, 20 years from now, there will be things where, that we need to apply this truth to those circumstances as well. So we pray that this would be something that comes back to our mind as your spirit brings it back to our memory. We love you, Lord. We thank you again for the challenge you give to us from your word, and we thank you for the fact that your son, Jesus Christ, took your wrath, and the curse that was upon us, upon himself, so that we could experience liberty, so that we could experience new life, so that we could have an eternity, 
not at a distance from you, but an eternity that we get to spend right there in your presence, and that eternity's already begun for those who know you. You are close to your children, and we're grateful for that. So thank you for your presence with us now. We commit our hearts unto you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.